1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. This is the second week of a three-week series we're doing called When God's People Fail. Gleaning truth and encouragement from the rubble. I was talking with a friend this week and one of the things that we were talking about is we love the Old Testament because the characters and even the heroes in the Old Testament are, are so relatable. Sometimes the Apostle Paul is so spiritual. I, I, I have trouble relating to him. But the people in the Old Testament, there's one thing that they do. They fail. And, and they're very relatable because of that. And so I explained it this way. Starting last week, we, we talked about King Saul and the failure that, that he was. And I compared it to a high school yearbook where on the day that you looked your absolute worst, the most unflattering picture that could ever be taken of you was on that day in your high school yearbook so that people could look over that for years to come. Well, that is very much like the snapshots that we're going to see and we saw last week and going to continue to see about these people in the Old Testament. And tonight's colossal failure is David. Long before he was king, in fact, in the process of becoming king, we're going to look at tonight at, at his failure, maybe not the one that you're thinking of, a different one, but this one's really important, and this one could have literally changed, changed the course of history. And a lot of things could have been different if God didn't intervene in that. But before we go any further, our theme verse over this entire study is this, Romans 15, verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. As we say, the, the struggle is real. Well, their, their struggles are real. And David is going to reach a place tonight that I think many of us can, can definitely identify with. But I want to set it up this way before we actually get to 1 Samuel chapter 27. One of my favorite stories, something that happened before I was born, and you can't make this stuff up. The year was 1970. And in Oregon, somewhere along the, co the coast of Oregon, a 45-foot, 8-ton whale beached itself and sadly died on the beach. And the question was for the community, okay, what exactly do we do with a 45-foot, 8-ton whale that is now rotting or going to start to rot on the beach? And this is where it gets good. I picture them in my mind. They called in the highway department. I don't know. I, why the highway department? I don't know. But that's who they called. Clearly experts on getting rid of a whale on a beach. And they have a meeting. Different strategies. Do we drag it back out to sea? Do we try to bury the thing on the beach? And then it happened. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, th there's no way that there were any women at present at this meeting. It had to be all guys. Because of what I'm about to tell you, it had to be all guys. One of them evidently stands up and says, I, you know, kind of pulls the pants up, I'll tell you what we're going to do. 
we're going to get some dynamites and we're going to blow that thing to smithereens. Either you said smithereens or kingdom come. I'm not sure, but it was one of the two. And we're going to blow the thing up. And all the guys at the table, yeah, yeah. Because after all, what problem do you have that cannot be solved with dynamite? I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's a great solution. Well, it became really a community event. Because everybody knew about the whale. They were probably starting to smell the whale. And it was announced... We're going to set it up. We're going to do it at this time. Everybody needs to be a quarter mile of away. A quarter mile away. People are bringing lawn chairs. They're setting up. It's it's great. And they have the countdown. I mean, if this was today, it would be an internet sensation. We would all be watching it live and reporters and acting like they're being blown away in the wind and they're really not, all that kind of thing. Okay, but it comes down to the countdown. Three, two, one. Boom. The explosion. And there's cheering and applause and yeah! And then it happens. Whale blood and blubber and parts and bones and organs start falling out of the sky from everywhere. And people are literally running for their lives as whale parts fall out of the sky. A quarter of a mile away, there was a car, the roof was crushed in because a falling part of rotting whale flesh crushed in the top of the car. And the sad thing was, as they do all of this, they only blew up about a quarter of the whale and the rest of it was left there. The idea was we blow it up and all of the birds and crabs and everything will come and devour the whale. Well, after the explosion, all of the wildlife probably fled forever from that area and they're still left with a rotting whale, three quarters of a rotting whale carcass on the beach. Why do I tell you that story? Here's my point. Sometimes... When we try to solve a problem, we create a bigger problem than the problem that we had in the first place. The moral of the story is not, don't blow up the whale on the beach. The moral of the story is, make sure that God wants you to solve that problem before you decide to solve that problem. Because a lot of the time, we create much worse situations. That's exactly what David is going to do here. But here's what's different about it. When I say David failed, most of you are thinking Bathsheba, if you know the Old Testament. This is, this is before that. You know, Bathsheba was bad enough, but that happens really long after David becomes king, and a lot of things had been set in motion. What we're going to see tonight is, if this takes place, if God does not intervene in David's life, in this story, he never becomes king. Now, God was going to see to it that that was going to happen. But just as we talk about that before we even get into there, as you look back over your life, aren't you glad that there were times that God intervened and overcame your own bad choices to put you in the place that you're supposed to be instead of the place that you could have ended up? That's just, God is so good in that way. And it didn't, we didn't like it at the time and it didn't make sense at the time. But that's what God does for us because He's merciful and His sovereignty in our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 27 verse 1 says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. 
There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose, went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. That sounds familiar. There was a big fella named Goliath that had come from Gath. And now David's going to settle in that town. Or, or you know, in that area. Verse 3. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul was no longer chasing after David when he realized that David had fled away to the Philistines. Problem solved, right? David got a little tired of Saul chasing after him, and so we flee to the land of the Philistines. Problem solved. Uh, not exactly. Let, let's go back a little bit before we move forward with that, though, to understand how we got here and, and why Saul is chasing David and all of that. We go back to 1 Samuel 16, where we talked about last week, where Samuel is sent out to anoint the next king of Israel while Israel still has King Saul in place. David is anointed over the king of Israel while Saul is still king. In the same chapter... David, David must be thinking as he's getting the oil poured over his head, I'm going to be the king. And I'm guessing in his mind, he probably doesn't expect it to happen tomorrow, but I bet in his mind, he has a time frame for when this is going to take place, but it's not God's time frame. And you may have noticed that your time frame and God's time frame are rarely ever on the same page. And that's what David is going to see. This guy's been anointed the next king of Israel. Well, the rest of the thing we see in chapter 16, David enters into Saul's service. And we're thinking, well, he would be the heir apparent. He's going to go in as an apprentice. No, it's totally unrelated. David is going to go in as the musician who plays to calm Saul's nerves, Saul's nerves when he gets crazy. When he gets literally insane... Of all people, David is going to be the one to play his instrument to soothe Saul's tormented soul. Chapter 16, verse 18 says this about David. And this is a powerful statement, especially about a man this young. It says that he was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. That's amazing to say about a person that, that's that young. But, but that, that gives us the, the idea of David's heart and David's character. And what Saul is going to see and what we see through chapter 16, through chapter 17, through chapter 18. It's like a highlight reel for David. It, it's amazing things that take place. But what David doesn't realize and what David is going to see through this is God's ways of preparing him are not going to be what he expected. Any more than God's ways of preparing us are not going to be what we expected. David sees himself on the rise. He sees, yes, God is bringing this promise to, to fulfillment, but he doesn't realize the whole journey that he's about to have to walk through to 
to get from being the little shepherd boy in the field to being the king over Israel. And so it begins there in 16. We go on to 17. You know the story. David kills Goliath. That should have been Saul. But once again, here's a point for David. No points for Saul. We, we wanted the king to fight our battles, but the king's not fighting our battles. The next king is fighting our battles. Chapter 18. David becomes great friends, ironically, with the guy who should have been the next king, with Jonathan, Saul's son. They become best of friends. And it's going to be something else that's going to drive Saul absolutely crazy. By succession, Jonathan should have been the next king. But by the time David and Jonathan become friends, they both know Jonathan's not going to become the next king because God's already said Saul's lost his dynasty. Imagine this. David and Jonathan are great friends. They both know that David is really going to take Jonathan's place, and yet somehow they're still friends. But there is a moment in chapter 18 where there is a battle and David returns and the women are dancing in the street and they're singing and playing the tambourine and they sing together. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And there's a moment right there where Saul could have humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, or he could have allowed himself to go insanely jealous over David. And you can guess which one happened. Because it's not long after that, all Saul is seeing, all Saul is hearing about is David, David, David. And he's sick of it, and he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. A couple of different occasions where that happens, but everywhere Saul is, David's name is springing up and it's looking more and more like the writing is on the wall. Saul, you're on your way out. David, you're on your way in. Chapter 18, verse 12, it says this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. See, Saul knew where all this was going. Part of the reason for his rage and his anger, he knows where this whole thing is going but what David doesn't understand yet is God is going to use all these things that are about to happen for his process of preparation. And it's not going to make sense to him, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But what we're about to see, and we won't be able to get into great detail tonight for the sake of time, but chapter 19 all the way through chapter 26, it's simply this. It's one story after another of Saul chasing after David with every intention to kill him. Even though God has already said, Saul, your dynasty is over, and I have found a man who is after my own heart, Saul's going to chase this kid and try to kill him. And this goes on for a long period of time. It's Saul chasing after David. And yet, that is God's process of preparation for David. And we can spend all night talking about how bad Saul was. Saul's an evil guy. It was so unfair for him to have to be chasing, for him to chase after David that way. But this is what we do. 
Most of us are working so hard to solve the problem. Most of us are working so hard to fix the person. And the question is not, how do we get out of the situation? The question is, what is God trying to teach me through this? It's not about escaping. It's not about the person. It's not about your boss. It's not about your family member that's making your life miserable. It really is. What is God trying to teach you through that? David's going to have to come to understand that. But the most inconvenient truth about this whole thing, chapter 19 through 26, as Saul pursues David, is God is the one that's allowing this to happen. And at any point, God could have said, enough. And he doesn't. And even when Saul has the opportunity and will say to David, you know what, you're a better man than I am. I know that you're going to be the next king and what I'm doing and chasing you is wrong and David might get a glimmer of hope that this is going to come to an end. It doesn't come to an end. And maybe you've experienced this too. When you expected the trials to be hard, when you expected to walk through something difficult, but man, I didn't know it was going to take this long. The amazing things about God, I guess when you're completely sovereign and you're omniscient, you don't have to be in a hurry. We're in a hurry. God's not. God knows how much time He has. And what He's doing, it doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand that. But everything that happens in our lives, we we need to get over feeling like we're always just a a victim of randomness and understand that this is the sovereign hand of God in our lives. And it's preparation. For our good and for His glory. This is not about Saul. This is about what God is trying to do in David. A few highlights briefly. We'll get to it. Chapter 24. Saul is chasing after David and goes into a cave to relieve himself. And of all the people, of all the situations, David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave. David sneaks up, cuts the corner off of his robe, Saul leaves. David comes out and says, Hey, looky here. I could have killed you, but I chose not to. In a way, that was wrong. Even though David did not kill Saul, in a way, that was wrong because he tried to show him up, and he did. But even when Saul realizes, and he probably turns white as a sheet, realizing what David could have done to him, and that would have been an embarrassing thing too. He could have killed me, and he didn't. Chapter 24, verse 20, Saul says to David, And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Even Saul knows it. And so you'd think it would stop there. David would think it would stop there. No. Some other things happen, but we move on to chapter 26. Saul and his men are still chasing after David. And they're sleeping and David and his, one of his men walk right into the camp of Saul and his men. And they take his water jar and they take his spear. The guy with David even said, let me run him through. I won't, I won't have to strike him twice. And David says, no, we're not going to touch God's anointed. They take the jar, they take the spear, and they walk away When David was encouraged to kill Saul, chapter 26, verse 10, listen to what he says. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish, but it's not going to be at my hand. 
I'm going to let God take care of this. I'm going to let God deal with this guy who's trying to kill me. This is the process of preparation, and David seems to get it. David spared Saul again, and Saul even admitted, verse 21, that this was a great mistake. He shouldn't be doing this. 26, 24, David says to Saul, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Does that not seem like a victory for David? Does that not seem like things are moving in the right direction? David gets it, Saul gets it, anybody who saw this gets it. You see the white space in your Bible between the last verse of 26 and the first verse of 27? Something happens there. We don't, we don't get a lot of detail about that. But David comes off the heels of a victory and he's in a different place by the time we get to 27. Don't know the time interval there, but something happens. And maybe it started in a very small way. But David started talking to himself. Well, worse, he started listening to himself at that point. And scripture is very deliberate in the way that, that it describes this. In verse 1, Then David said in his heart. Then David said in his heart. Now, we're not going to get a verse a few verses later that said that this whole thing was an abomination to God. And we don't, we don't really even get God's opinion on this. It just tells us the details. But there's enough there for us to see what's going on here. David didn't pray and seek the Lord. David didn't seek out wise counsel. David just said in his heart... And we'll get to that in just a minute. But see, that, that's, a, that's a very popular idea right now. Is, well, how do you know what to do? Well, well just, just follow your heart. No, stop it. Don't do that. You can't follow your heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If your heart's desperately sick and you can't understand it, you probably don't want to follow that. Now, it's not an issue of we just, how we feel, what we're thinking, how we're processing things don't have anything to do with it. I'm not saying that, that we just, well, what do I do? It's not always like that, but somebody explained it this way, and I thought this was profound. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. It doesn't say, don't use your understanding. It just says, don't lean on it. And what we typically do is, what we're supposed to do is lean on the Lord and use our understanding. But a lot of the time what we do is we lean on our, understand, on our own understanding and use the Lord to justify what we're doing, to validate a decision that we've already made because that's the road that we're going to go on. You can't trust your own heart, so don't follow after that. But before we go any further, what you say in your heart, those tapes that play over and over again in your mind, 
That's going to determine your destiny. That's going to determine the direction you're going. And this is why knowing Scripture and what it says about you, and more importantly, what it says about God, is so vital and so important. Because if Scripture is not leading you, if an objective truth is not leading you, you're probably more likely going to be going by your feelings. And you know how your feelings are. One minute you're in the car just listening to your worship music and praising God and then somebody cuts you off and you're a different person. You can't go on your feelings. But here's the other thing we've got to recognize too. The enemy loves to sow doubt and to sow fear. And part of the reason why we end up making horrible choices it's because we didn't trust God and we gave into the fear and we gave into the doubt. And that wasn't coming just out of you. That was coming from an enemy who wants to throw in all kinds of doubts and fears about God and your situation. But for a lot of us too, it wasn't so much that the enemy has said things to us. It's that there has been a significant person in our life who said horrible things to us, who, who used abusive words to us, and to this day, it may have been 50 years ago, but to this day, we still hear it loud and clear, don't we? And the enemy would love to use that to play those negative messages over and over again. You're never going to measure up. You're not pleasing to God. God can't use somebody like you. You're defective. You're irre You know, all of those things. And that's why, again, what are you going to combat that with? The Word of God. Because that's not what the Word says about you. That's not what the Word says about your situation. And more importantly, that's not what the Word says about our God. But David said in his heart, he started telling lies. Many, many of us have done this, but David does this too. David already knew the Lord is my shepherd. He just forgot and he stopped reminding himself of God's promises. And please hear this. It's not enough just to know Scripture. We have to rehearse it over and over again in our hearts. We have to meditate on it. We have to just continually think about that. Because you can know the words backwards and forwards, but if you're not applying it to what you're walking in, it's not helping. David knew this stuff, but he just forgot about it. And so the lies began. He said in his heart, here it is, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David, God's brought you this far. Don't you see that? He hasn't laid a hand on you. His own kids have conspired against him to help you. Don't you see that God's on your side here? No, no, I'm going to perish one day, one day by the hands of Saul. Not that the times that I've been delivered mean that God's protecting me. It means that my luck is running out and one day it's finally going to happen and he's going to get me. Even though God had told David he was going to be king, others had acknowledged to David that he was going to be king, and Saul himself had acknowledged, David, you're going to be king. But David felt like he had to take control because he was what he was telling himself wasn't true. Maybe you know somebody else that despite all of God's promises, despite all the truth of God's word, you still have an ability to expect and predict the worst. You look at a situation and just decide, well, I better, I better do this. David forgot. And he said in his heart something that wasn't true. 
And then he goes on to say, there is nothing, this is so sad, that he reaches this point. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There's nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. No, that, that is just not true. No, David, what, what you could do here in the situation is, is trust God. There is a better option for you here in this situation. You could trust God. But he's believing the lies. You see, we're in danger when we start listening to the enemies of the, li- the, the lies of the enemy, but we're doomed when we start saying them to ourselves. Somehow, some way, David's gotten off track, and he's saying the lies to himself now. Because David reached a place somewhere between 26 and 27 where he was just done. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. This isn't ending. This isn't changing. And I am just, the way we would say it, I am just done. A lot of us have been there. A lot of us are there. There's something that we need to remember as we get to that place. Somebody said this a while back, and I've never forgotten this. When God looks bad, sin looks really good. When you're at a place that you're just done, and you're frustrated, and you're angry, and you're vulnerable, look out. Because that's when you're going to mess up. That, that's when you are very prone to making a huge mistake. At this point, basically, David is saying that God has failed. But he spoke too soon. And most of the time, we speak too soon. The story's still being written. God's not finished with us. And God's track record is this. Every single time, he's been faithful to his people. Every single time, God has come through in his timing and his way. And the good news is, your situation is not going to change that. God's not going to change. God's not going to lose his 100% perfect track record in your life. He's going to be faithful to you as well. We just have to wait that out and we just have to see. David obviously didn't really know what to do. But you got to give David credit for one thing. When he sinned, he did it on a large scale. The Bathsheba thing was horrible. But David, the Philistines... To go to the land of the Philistines, you couldn't pick somebody else besides our our mortal enemy, the Philistines? Well, as you you can imagine, it's not going to go well. We'll get to that in just a moment. David, obviously, in the situation, didn't know what he should do. We've been there. I have no idea what to do in this situation. But the worst thing that you can do, what David did, the worst thing you can do in a situation where you don't know what to do is to do something. I I just... I don't know what to do, so I'll go to the land of the Philistines. No, if you don't know what to do, wait until it's clear of what you're supposed to do. And while you're waiting, a great question to ask is, have I been fully obedient to what God has already shown me to do? Because maybe the reason we don't know what to do next is we haven't done what we were already supposed to do. And God's made that clear. God's not in a hurry. And if God's not in a hurry, if God's not in a panic, we don't need to be either. When it was told, verse 4, to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So we solved the problem. Well, no, we actually created a bigger problem. And to use the analogy, this is where the whale blubber just starts falling from the sky. That seemed like that worked, David, but no. 
Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, Achish again is the, the king, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me, one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. This wasn't a weekend excursion. This was 16 months. And do you know out of this 16 months, Scripture doesn't really tell us that, you know, this was an abomination to the Lord and God was upset with David over this. Scripture's pretty silent about that. But speaking of silence, David doesn't write any psalms. None of, none of the, the psalms that we read from David emerge out of this time period. There's really not a, anything good that comes from it. God's quiet. God's not screaming and yelling and panicking. But he's not indifferent either. And so here's the rest of the story that takes place the rest of 27, 28, 29, and into 30. David's pretty smart. Give him, give him credit. He's in the land of the Philistines, and he's got to convince the Philistines that he's one of them. So he and his men go on a series of raids. They make it look like they're attacking Israel, people associated with Israel, but they're not. And as they're raiding these people, they're killing them all so that nobody can come back and tell the story. And David is cunning enough to convince the Philistine king that he has fully defected. He's fully gone Philistine. Never mind his background, never mind his heritage. He's now one of them. But it reaches a problem when the Philistines are ready to engage Israel in battle. And David is now a man without two countries. But understand this. If David fights for the Philistines against Israel, you can't unring that bell. He's not going to ever be the king over Israel if he fights against them at this point. And he's ready to do that. And God intervenes. And God, in His mercy, intervenes. Not dramatically, just through the circumstances. Chapter 29, they get ready to engage Israel in battle. And the commanders of the Philistines, not the king, but the commanders of the Philistines come to the king and say, no, 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 that guy can't fight with us. He's not going to fight beside us. Those are his own people. And he's got a reputation. Remember, Saul has killed his thousands and David its tens of thousands. Didn't they used to sing that? We can't trust him. David protests, throws a fit about it, but Achish gives in. And he sends David and his men, 600 men, Back to the place they had settled, back to Ziklag, chapter 29. And in that small little thing right there, through the distrust of the commanders of the Philistines, God kept David from crossing a line that he could never uncross. God's working behind the scenes. Not even with David's cooperation. It's so good that he does that. Chapter 30. Sometimes we wonder how God can use a tragedy. Well, th this is how. David and his men return to Ziklag. And the Amalekites have raided. They've carried off all their wives, all their children, all their possessions. Sometimes we think that our choices only affect us, 
No, no, no. What David has done here is now affecting a whole lot of people beyond just himself and the 600 men that he brought with him. Because their wives and their kids have now been carried away. And it's a scary moment. But this is the moment, after 16 months, this is the moment that God uses to finally get David's attention. Somewhere in this time, David realizes, you know, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And my decisions have caused all of this. And it's not just me, it's all of these people. And it reached a point that David was probably a little frightened because in verse 6, chapter 30, verse 6, it says this, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people, people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But here it is, chapter 30, verse 6, at the very end. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Finally. After 16 months, there it is. That's what we've been waiting for. And we want to say to David, why didn't you strengthen yourself in the Lord your God at the end of 26 or the beginning of 27 before you did this? Why'd you have to go to the land of the Philistines for 16 months to have to learn this lesson? Sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Sometimes we listen to our heart. We find a way to justify our disobedience. And we walk away. So as we walk through all of that, what do we do with that tonight? If you're being tempted to go to the land of the Philistines, if you're being tempted to to do something in the flesh to solve a problem that needs to be dealt with and spiritually, don't do it. This, This is the warning. But for some of you tonight, maybe you're in the land of the Philistines. And you've been there for a while. And the great news is, there's a way out. And there's a way home. And David found it. And so can we. David returned to what he knew. He strengthened himself in the Lord as God. God did give deliverance. God restored their families to them. And he began the journey back. And in God's faithfulness... This didn't blow David's opportunity to become the king because God still saw that it would happen. It's really not about so much about what we do of just walking with Him, waiting for each one of God's promises in our lives to be fulfilled, but to wait and to watch as He does that and to submit to His timing instead of believing the lies. So as we get ready to wrap up tonight, I want to invite you to turn with me one more place. Psalms 27. I've been reading a lot of Psalms tonight. That's a great thing. But this is the passage that maybe I, I, I wish David would have reminded himself before he does all of this. But see, we get to read David's warning and we get to receive his encouragement. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. 
And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Let's skip down to verse 11. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He finishes with this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray.